Good morning. Guess I should say more like good afternoon. Service times have changed a lot since uh, I've been here. For those of you who don't know, I spent the last couple months in uh, Mississippi with Grace and Andy Halsey serving at their church and just got back a week and a half, two weeks, two weeks ago. And we had a good time down there and Grace and Andy send their love. It's great to get to know them. Turn in uh, your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And we'll be looking at verses 7 through 12. <clears throat> but we have this treasure in earthen vessels or jars of clay, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. Before we jump into this morning's passage, let's do a little bit of a refresher course. Second Corinthians is a book that's full of pastoral wisdom and encouragement for the church at Corinth, but it is primarily a dealing with one issue in the church, the integrity of the Apostle Paul's apostolic ministry. Men have come into the church at Corinth claiming to be apostles, and they have undermined the ministry of the Apostle Paul and the gospel he preached. On top of this, the appearance of certain circumstances have given occasion for these false apostles and those within the church that oppose Paul to question his integrity among the brothers. For instance, first he wrote that he would come and visit them, and then he never came. He wrote scathing rebukes of them in previous letters, and he didn't show up to back up his rebukes. And so he was being accused of having no integrity. You said, you, you said you'd come... But you never came. You're so very bold in your letters. But where were you? You're so weak in person. And so Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this letter, which is above all other things, a spirited defense of the ministry entrusted to him by God. This is important for us because we must know exactly what a faithful gospel ministry looks like and what false accusations frequently attend it so that we're not deceived. More than that, we also need to know how to defend a faithful ministry in a faithful way. It can be done. It's done right here. Paul's always defending his ministry. It's always under attack. In fact, one of the things we can learn from this letter and from Paul's entire life and ministry is that faithful ministers and faithful ministries are always under attack. Jesus and the apostles and the prophets were always under attack. Their ministry was always being pushed out to the fringes. They were always being painted as lunatics, as being a little over the top. Think of Jesus. Think of John the Baptist. Think of the prophets and the apostles. Think of Felix telling Paul, you are out of your mind. Faithful ministers are also constantly attacked as men without integrity. Every minor fault or personality flaw 
is pounced on as evidence that they have no integrity and therefore no valid testimony. I was talking with David Baker after the first service, and he was telling me about a pastor friend he knows that was ejected from his church on the grounds that he didn't follow Robert's rules of order precisely enough in their meetings. Every minor fault is pounced on as an opportunity to show that you have no integrity and therefore no valid testimony. And where that doesn't exist, they'll make them up and fabricate them. Think about our Lord before the courts. In chapter, Paul, in chapter 1, this is exactly what Paul's doing. He has to answer for the fact that he wrote in a letter to a church hundreds of miles away that he'd come and visit them, and then he never did. He has to answer accusations that he's a two-faced, unstable, vacillating liar. Never mind that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. Never mind that he founded the church there in Corinth. There was no grace for him. There was no consideration of the possibility that perhaps circumstances had hindered his ability to come. There was absolutely no mercy extended to him at all. It was like they were sitting there waiting for the one thing they could jump on to discredit him. And as soon as it was there, they jumped right on it. They had him. Or faithful ministers are attacked as men who do not have God's favor by virtue of the fact that their friends lunatics and they're constantly suffering in some form or another. Remember Jesus on the cross. If you're the son of God, if you belong to God, let God rescue you. Let God take you down. You clearly don't have God's favor or else you wouldn't be going through what you're going through. And so what we find is that the very things that invalidate a faithful ministry in the eyes of the world are the very things that God singles out as sure markers of faithfulness. Paul has a faithful ministry, and thus far in this letter, he's defended it in two ways. The first thing he's done is he's constantly throughout the book reminded the Corinthians of his sincerity and his integrity. He says this, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity or holiness and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. Chapter 1, verse 12. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. Chapter 1, verse 18. We are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 17. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Chapter 4, verse 12. It's the first thing he's done. The second thing he's done is he's demonstrated his integrity by reminding the Corinthians of his fellowship with Jesus, his Christ-likeness in suffering for the sake of the gospel, and the fruit that his suffering, his suffering has borne in the lives of in their lives and in the lives of others. So in chapter 1, he says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us, me, Paul, and the other apostles, in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. 
For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. There are other places, but you get the point. He's not even really begun to use his sufferings to validate his ministry yet. Not even in this morning's passage. He peppers them throughout the book. They're always there. He's always laying down a standard for what a faithful minister looks like by setting his own life and ministry forward. And he does that all over the New Testament, not just in this book. And so we come to this morning's passage. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. We have this treasure. What treasure? What's the treasure we're talking about? What treasure does he have in jars of clay? It's the ministry of the gospel. It's the ministry of life, of power, and of glory. It's the gospel that frees men from the power and the condemnation of sin. It's the gospel that transforms them into the image of Christ, delivers them from the power of the God of this world, and makes them partakers of eternal life. That's the treasure. This treasure... We have, we have this treasure. We have this treasure. We. Who's we? Who is it? Be careful. Who do you think it is? Is it you? Is it everyone? It's not. It's not everyone that he's talking about. He's talking about those who have been entrusted with the ministry of the gospel. And you say, that's me. I've been entrusted with the ministry of the gospel. I'm a Christian. Every Christian has been entrusted with the ministry of the gospel. Okay, sure, but no. No. (laughs) No, it's not. He's He's not talking about all Christians. He's talking about himself. I know this for two reasons. First reason is that Throughout this entire letter, when he uses the inclusive plural we, us, he is almost always talking about himself and the other apostles and who are with him. He's talking about himself, Timothy, Titus. He's talking about the apostles in Jerusalem, we, us, almost exclusively throughout the whole book. And secondly, he says this, we're afflicted, we are crushed, we carry around the death of Jesus. So death is at work in us, but... But life is at work in you. Death is at work in us. We are jars of clay. We are afflicted. We are persecuted. We carry about in our bodies the death of Jesus. So death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. And he's not being facetious. So he's talking about those specifically that God has set apart for the work of the ministry. Ministry. It's a word that's used. Holy Spirit's word, not my word. We, the apostles, those set apart for the work of the ministry, have this treasure, the gospel, in jars of clay. What's he talking about when he says jars of clay? 
his body, frail, the fact that he's mortal. Now, if he was just talking about being mortal, he could be talking about all of us. But this is what he says. So that the surpassing greatness of the power will not be will be of God and not from ourselves. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, persecuted, always caring about in the body, the dying of Jesus. It's a it's being a weak, suffering, perishing man. That's what it means to be a jar of clay. It's weakness. Being those who are despised. It's always been God's habit to choose the weak and the despised of this world to bear his word and through them to bring life and salvation. Always. Always. Just think about redemptive history. Think about the Old Testament. Think about Abram, who we read about earlier. God set him apart to to raise up a people through whom he would bring salvation to the world. Think of the weakness of Abraham. Think about the nation of Israel, whom he chose to be his covenant people, through Abraham. Do you remember what God said to them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt? He says, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. He chose them because they were small, because they were weak. How about Gideon? And he went to battle with 300 men. He had uh, 32,000 men who were there with him, ready to fight. And God says this, The people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands. There are too many. There are too many there for me to work with. For Israel would become boastful, saying, My own power has delivered me. And God will not share his glory with another. So he pairs it down to 300 men. How about this? When they entered, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Or this, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? It's King David, right? That's who we're talking about. David, the shepherd boy. Think of Elijah and Elisha and Jeremiah. Think of the prophets who went around hiding in caves alone by themselves, being hunted by men. And yet they were bold as lions. They were mighty instruments in the hand of an almighty God. Why? Because they were strong? Was it because Elijah was strong that he sent the fire to consume the prophets of Baal? Elijah was one man and a weak man. Think of Daniel alone in Babylon. God delights to use the weak and the foolish to confound the strong and the wise because God will not give his glory to another. The whole book of the Bible is a book of weak and despised men. It's a bloody book, and it was purchased by the blood of weak and despised men. And it brings us life, though it brought them their death. This is the way that God works. 
And so when God sets apart ministers for himself, men who will bear the treasure of the gospel of grace, he chooses the weak and the lowly and the despised. All of God's true ministers are jars of clay. And when God's ministers are faithful, it does not increase their stature among men. Their faithfulness brings affliction and sorrow and distress. It brings persecution and nakedness and sword. Why? So that everyone who looks and sees, everyone who sees God preserving them, everyone who sees the power, will give glory to God and not to men. More than that, God purposes through the death and suffering of his ministers, through their death and suffering, to produce life in those whom he is saving. So church, there's a warning here. And it is stay away from men who stay away from the cross. They have no life for you. They only have death. Do I even need to talk about prosperity preachers? Do I need to talk about the men on television with their big hair and their bleached smiles? You should know better. They offer you a world of hope and financial prosperity if you'll only believe enough to contribute $1,000 to my ministry. Call now. Operators are standing by. Jesus suffered so that you don't have to. Why are you living in such misery? Surely you have no faith. Prove your faith now by sowing a seed of one, five, or even $10,000. The bigger the donation, the better the proof, and the greater the blessing. Aren't you just tired of living in defeat? Aren't you just tired of waking up in the morning and feeling like you just can't succeed? I believe that God's got a plan for your life. I believe that he doesn't want you to go on living without self-esteem. You see, you are a child of the king. And if you know that you are a child of the king, you should know that you can do anything. I believe that God wants to bless you this morning. It's time to rise up and embrace who you really are. It's time to grab a hold of your best life now. How about the smooth talkers? The oh-so-clever preacher that is wise to the ways of the world. The one who professes to live and move among the people, he's figured out how to never offend anyone. In fact, the pagans honor him and add him to their bestsellers list. He's missional. He is contextualized. He is incarnational. And he can teach you how to relate to the pagans in a way that will never bring an ounce of persecution to you. Oh, you may feel a little bit of heat from some old religious fogies some older brothers, but you'll be off the hook with those that really matter, with the movers and the shakers, with the elite, with the cool. Just learn the right things to trim, learn to speak their language, learn the right approach. These aren't sins, they're mistakes. And I can never speak to them. Who am I to judge you? God calls me to address the heart, not behavior. These men all preach a gospel that excludes Jesus. Their Christianity has no place in it for the Christ of the Bible. Their view of the ministry excludes Paul, the apostles, and the prophets. There is no place in their diaconate for men like Stephen, nor is there a place in their congregation for the first century slave girls that were fed to the lions. And you shouldn't need me to tell you that. You better know it. There is no death in their officers, and therefore there is no life in their congregations. 
you understand what people mean when they say they want to be incarnational, right? I have a student. He's still here. And when he first came here, his whole shtick was being incarnational. It was the banner he wanted to place over his life. I want to live an incarnational life. And he would soar into rhetorical ecstasy on the poetry of the incarnation. And maybe you should, because it's beautiful. But what did he mean? What did he mean then? He meant that he wanted to be a Christian that lives and moves among the pagans just without ever suffering. He wanted to be different than those crusty old-time religionists. He couldn't care less how much he offended them. Oh, so very bold. He wanted to actually relate to the pagans because somehow it's only the religious people that persecute Christians and never pagans. Never mind the Romans. Never mind that they were in league with the Jews when they killed our Lord. Never mind the Colosseum. Never mind Nero. Never mind the idol makers that caused a riot in Ephesus because the gospel was cutting in on their business. But the Bible is not so narrow and neat as to accommodate your lust for the approval of pagans. You can't put it into a box. So, pastors, elders, those like me who aspire to be one. The call this morning is to be faithful. It's to know that it is the weakness of God's ministers that demonstrates the power of God. And it is their suffering that authenticates their ministries. They are partakers of Christ's death and his life. His death in their present sufferings, but his life in the fruit of their hands in the sheep. Unlike some who boast of having an incarnational ministry, we better understand exactly what it means to be incarnational. And we better know that here in Bloomington. Because there's a lot of pressure to gain the approval of the pagan intelligentsia. Especially if you have anything to do with the university. What you want is to be regarded as a gentleman and as a scholar. But the Bible says exactly what the gospel is to a pagan intellectual. It's foolishness. That's right. And if we preach it in such a way that it does not appear as foolishness, if our ministry, if the ministry of our church does not leave us open to the charge of being raving madmen, we are not preaching the gospel and we are not being faithful. We are preaching and living a crossless Christ that is no doubt good at winning many followers to ourselves, but of absolutely zero value in reconciling men to a holy God before whom they and we will give an account. There are many men that are sent on their way to hell by men without spines that are content to give them all the comfort and assurance that they've received abundant life. There is no cross, there is no cost, and therefore there is no salvation for them. You want to know what the incarnation is? This is it. The Prince of Light, the King of Glory, clothed himself in clay. And when he did that, we killed him. And in his death, he gives light and life to all men. Brothers, this is what it means to have an incarnational ministry. You are jars of clay. And when the world afflicts and presses and persecutes and strikes you, life comes to God's people. Because in your suffering, the powerful, rich life of Jesus is made manifest to the world. He becomes undeniable. He forces himself upon all who know and see. 
you are fellowshipping with him in his death, and his death is at work in you to produce life in others. If you run from that, if we run from that, we will never bear fruit from God. But if, like Jesus, your king, if, like the apostles and prophets, your brothers, you bear it like a good soldier, God will use your pathetic, feeble words, these deeds, prayers, sighs, and tears to bring life to the world, real life. An incarnational ministry is one that is a stench to all who are being condemned, even pagans. But it is life to all whom God is saving. Do these qualities apply to you in your ministry? Are you afflicted, perplexed, persecuted? We have to be asking ourselves this all the time. The life of the church is at stake. If you will not lay down your life for the sheep, the life of Jesus will not be manifested in your bodies, and there will be no life produced through your ministry. You must be like Jesus, and you must take heart that though you will be afflicted, you will not be crushed. Though you will be perplexed, you will not be driven to despair. Though you will be persecuted, you will not be forsaken. Though you will be struck down, you will not be destroyed. Though you carry around in your body the death of Jesus, his life will be manifested in your flesh. The Lord will honor your obedience. He will preserve you. And the crown of life will await you after your service is done. In church, it is absolutely imperative that you support and encourage the faithful shepherds in your midst. It's a lonely and it's a hard work. They bear the brunt of the, of the blows, and you live. The history of this church, the history of its leaders, is a history of men laying down their lives, of making themselves a stench to the dying. And it has been life to this church. And if it is life to you, you better honor them. You may not be ashamed. It is the very death itself that is producing the life. From how this church was formed to every case of public discipline, to every private rebuke, and all of the slander and lies that have attended it, this is the death of your pastors and elders, and this is your lifeblood. Cherish and honor them, and don't you dare blush when someone asks you what church you go to. And you are not off the hook when it comes to suffering. I know you want to be. I know that you're very happy that this passage refers specifically to those set apart for the work of the ministry. But God calls you to follow them and to imitate them. In Philippians, the Apostle Paul says this, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Do I need to make the case that the Christian life is a life of suffering? Do I need to quote to you where Paul says that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted? Or do I need to quote Jesus to you? A servant is not greater than his master. A student is not above his teacher. If they hated me, they will hate you. The we in this passage is important, and it doesn't let you off the hook. You are called to suffer, but God has given you men to follow. If you are called to suffer for Jesus, they are especially called to suffer for Jesus. They are to you real-life examples of the life of Jesus. You are not above your pastors and elders and teachers. If they are faithful to Jesus, the world will hate them. If the world hates them, they will hate you. What you want to say is, I'll just follow Jesus. Or even, I'll just follow Paul. Because they're out there somewhere and you can't put your finger on them. Because they're not in front of you. You don't see the weakness of the Apostle Paul before you. 
What you see is the weakness of the men who are before you, the jars of clay. The church at Corinth saw Paul's weakness, and what did they do? They despised him. And he said to them, no, it's, not in, my, it's in my weakness that I'm strong. For in my weakness, that's exactly where the power of God is seen. You hate the very proof of God's work. God has set up men in his church to be shepherds. He has commanded them to be examples of Christ to you. And you are to follow them as they follow Christ. You may hate it, but it is God's mercy to you. It is God stooping down to you in your weakness and giving you something tangible. They're being incarnational. As your pastors and elders join in Christ's suffering and lay down their lives for you, you are to join them in their work and lay down your lives for others. There are other sheep not of this fold that need to see and know the saving work of Jesus Christ. You have pastors and elders that are faithful. You must join them in their work.